Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us now is Sam Bendet of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also a visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Sam is also one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, specifically Russia's unmanned arsenal. Sam, uh, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. So where are we uh, now in the conflict, uh, Sam? Right, It looks like uh, both sides have sort of ground down incremental uh, progress uh, happening. Vladimir Putin uh, saying that he wants to expand uh, the range of cons- uh, conscription. Uh, where, where are we right now? as the international community continues to try to help Ukraine. And Ukraine, I think, rightfully calling on the international community to do more uh, and to do more to hold Russia uh, to account, right? Uh, Zelensky uh, telling uh, Davos, for example, that uh, hundreds of cultural Ukrainian sites have been uh, destroyed, uh, for example. Where, Where are we in the conflict? So I think what's happening right now is the major initiatives uh, have stalled. Uh, we are witnessing basically retrenchment in um, in certain positions and directions with Russian forces unable to make significant breakthroughs and Ukrainian forces trying to hold on and uh, keep the Russian forces in place where they were. There's one big development. We do have a salient in the eastern part of the country in the Donetsk region around the cities of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk with the Ukrainian forces extended and uh, Russian forces attempting an encirclement of the Ukrainian positions. There's a lot of fighting around the village of Papasna, and the Russian forces have claimed to control most of it. Um, If the Russian forces would be able to encircle the Ukrainian forces in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, that would constitute a tactical victory that the Russian military can then spin into sort of a significant defeat for the Ukrainian military. This is one significant development where a lot of fighting is taking place. In other parts of Ukraine, we're not necessarily witnessing any significant breakthroughs specifically uh, based on the lines of fighting as of, let's say, 24 to 48 hours ago. In the event there's a Ukrainian defeat, how big of a defeat would that be? I mean, is that because there were concerns that that would be a large chunk of the conventional Ukrainian force that could get captured there? What's at stake with um, a Russian victory and a Ukrainian loss? Well, this would be one of the um, one of the battles waged, and uh, Ukrainians are, of course, committing a lot of resources to the fight, but it wouldn't necessarily constitute a significant. A defeat for the Ukrainian military. What is, however, happening is that the Russian military is beginning to grind down Ukrainian defenses, that a lot of Ukrainian weapons and systems and munitions have been expended. Ukrainians have suffered a lot of combat losses, just like the Russians. But the Russians have more, and they are attempting to grind the Ukrainians down. So this would be, again, um, this would be a significant defeat, but it wouldn't obviously end the war. But Russian military and the Russian government would present this as a uh, significant casualty of sort of the Ukrainian attempts to uh, 
defend themselves against the might of the Russian army. For the Ukrainians, of course, this would be um, um, if they were to lose that territory, if they were to be surrounded, uh, it would be um, a significant sort of hit on their uh, mental facilities and on their um, on their psychological facilities to wage the war. But it wouldn't necessarily prevent the rest of the Ukrainian forces from fighting the Russians. Uh, again, it right. would be uh, it would be one major battle that has been fought now for the past three months. The right. outcome of this battle doesn't necessarily uh, predetermine the outcome of this entire war, but it does create a psychological impetus to spin this uh, defeat or victory one way or another. The sense has been that a frozen conflict favors Russia, uh, that the, the West and the international community will lose interest, whereas the Russians will continue to plow on. Um, right. I mean, World War II was a victory of just sheer numbers and equipment thrown into the breach as opposed to tactical uh, uh, or, or, you know, even strategic finesse uh, at the end of the day. Right. At least historians have made that observation. Although right. sure that was Russians that was World War II. I think this conflict is a bit different because there are arguments um, uh, that go either way. There are arguments that a prolonged conflict actually favors Ukrainians, that they're able to um, exhaust Russian forces that are unable to make significant gains. And there are also arguments that a prolonged conflict may eventually favor Russian military, but not across the entire Ukrainian front, Right. in, in specific parts of the front, like, for example, the, the current battle around Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. Um, it, 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 interesting point. So the, the, uh, the question is, uh, right, uh, Putin is expanding uh, recruitment. Talk about Russia's ability to actually flex uh, and uh, deliver some more capability. You know, there's talk about BMPTs, the so-called Terminator uh, tanks. I mean, Russia has like a dozen of those. Uh, so I'm not necessarily sure that changes the dynamic. Talk to us about on the manpower side, what Russia is doing and what we can expect over the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, because you know, there. You know, I mean, everybody suggests like oh, there'll be a negotiated end to this. It doesn't look like either side is pulling the negotiation lever. Well, there are again arguments for and against um, this type of um, uh, Russian military conduct. There are arguments that, in fact, a prolonged war may exhaust Russian manpower capabilities. But there are also just as many valid arguments that, in fact, Russia can extend uh, this war for many, many months, because it is not calling for full mobilization. It does have a lot of uh, manpower still available. And a lot of the fighting is also done, not necessarily by the Russian army proper, but, but by the Donetsk and Lugansk allied forces. In fact, a lot of videos, a lot of images that are on social media, on Telegram, on, on Twitter and other platforms are of DNR and LNR forces specifically. So this can actually continue for a couple of months, maybe even uh, you know as many as six months, until again a significant breakthrough is made is made, and this is what Russians are hoping. They're hoping to kind of slice off parts of Ukrainian territory, create salience that they can then close off, surround Ukrainian forces, exhaust their defenses. For the Ukrainians, again, this type of prolonged warfare actually favors. Um, quick hit tactics, special forces uh, engagements where the Ukrainian forces can mass attack and then melt away 
preventing Russian forces from accurately targeting their adversaries. Uh, one of the major developments that was announced recently is that um, people over 40 can now be uh, eligible for military service in Russia. And so this kind of raises the question here in the West and elsewhere, is Russia running out of its younger soldiers? Uh, well, it's not. And again, it isn't a hundred percent sort of certainty that Russia has a lot of manpower in reserves. It does indicate that Russian government is trying to be flexible. It is trying to appeal to more experienced fighters, uh, people with greater military experience than some of the young, uh, young kids that are serving in the Russian forces today. The Ukrainian military has benefited from um, mixed units where young conscripts are serving together with more experienced soldiers. Uh, maybe Russia is trying to replicate that. Uh, but again, uh, it isn't 100% certain that Russia will or will not run out of its, of its manpower as this war drags on. Um, what about capability uh, development, right? I mean, what are the Russians doing to develop either new capabilities, right? I mean, every war is about adaptation, uh, ultimately. Um, we've seen some incredible tactical failures. Again, some of this is attributed to Putin playing a direct role in this, but from a capability standpoint, what are the kind of systems the Russians are trying to rush uh, to the front? Uh, because obviously, sort of some of the technological bands we have in effect are going to have maybe an impact a little bit into the future, as opposed to it being uh, immediate. But wh what are what are the Russians doing in order to be able to get the get better capability uh, into the field? We're witnessing heavy artillery that the Russian military is now using against the Ukrainian forces, artillery that is guided to targets by UAVs. We're witnessing more tanks uh, rush to the front. We're witnessing some of the newer technologies, like you mentioned, um, the, the tank support vehicles, which don't necessarily create a lot of difference in close quarter fighting. But again, it's, uh, it's as much a tactical as a psychological sort of fielding of forces that Russians are showcasing newer technologies used in combat. We are probably going to witness more Russian um, air-launched uh, ground attacks against the Ukrainian targets. Uh, there's going to be a mix of old and new technologies, mixed of resources, but ultimately we're not necessarily going to see anything new, nothing that would actually shock or surprise us um, from the conduct of this war um, starting in, in, in late February. We're going to see similar technologies and similar tactics, mainly because in, on some parts of the Ukrainian front, Russian forces are basically concluding that their tactics have proven useful, that they're able to grind down Ukrainian defenses. They're able to advance and create salience, which they, they can close off and, again, kind of slice off bits of Ukrainian territory uh, slowly but surely. Again, it's not clear how much this can continue, and it's not clear what repercussions this type of warfare has at home. We have seen some evidence of discontent, of criticism, some very public, in fact, on Russian national television, criticism that was, of course, walked back 48 hours later, as right. it often happens in Russia. But the fact that such critique can actually be aired publicly is probably just the tip of the iceberg. If, if public figures can be unhappy with the conduct of the war, then we can assume that regular people with access to social media channels, uh, to telegram channels and others 
who also have access to sort of a mixed bag of information, pro-Russian, anti-Russian, pro-Ukrainian, anti-Ukrainian, can judge for themselves as well. And it's not clear how that type of information environment is going to affect Russian government conduct and Russian government direction of this war. Um, it's uh, interesting uh, you uh, raised that because that was going to be, you know, do we have any reliable, right? I mean, the Chechen leader uh, was speaking to Russian uh, television uh, and was candid about losses. Uh, there was a prominent Russian military analyst whose name uh, escapes me, the retired uh, army. Khodaryanak. 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 Uh, yes. is the one you were talking about that in 48 yes. hours changed his tune. Um, yes. But, you know, he said, look, we've got to be candid. This is just not going well for us. Uh, and it is the world against us. I mean, it's what, what we've done is, um, you know, polarizing and, and the like. Um, do we have any reliable way of understanding, right? Because we hear from uh, oligarchs, former oligarchs, you know, Putin's days are numbered, Um the fact that Putin's days are numbered does not necessarily, you know, and people are saying, oh, you know, Navalny uh, will will be in soon. I mean, I it, it would be great if Navalny would be in. It would be great if Vladimir Karamurza would have a role uh, and a number of other people. But it that's not as likely uh, ultimately. Right. I mean, what what's how how do we know what's actually going on in Russia and what Russians think of this? Because actually, well, look, we, a lot of very smart Russians have left the country, yes. either permanently or temporarily. We may not have 100% certainty of what is or isn't happening amongst the Russian elites. It's great that some of them are talking. It's great that they're offering insights. But uh, Russian regime is ultimately one of survival. And if the Russian government was able to survive the 1990s under one president, in the midst of very significant upheaval and economic turmoil and social-cultural turmoil, um, it is likely that the current regime may survive in one form or another. There are, of course, very credible statements that point to the weakening of Putin's position the longer this war drags on. But it isn't clear where, you know, I don't, I don't think we will be able to just know with certainty when that's going to happen. Uh, we know that some of the elites have been critical of this war from the beginning. We know some people in the government expressed concern from the beginning when the war was launched and announced as such. We know that there are some people in the Russian government that wanted to quit and were not allowed to. And uh, they have to continue to be at the helm of that part of the government, that specific department that they headed earlier. Um, and of course, we have a lot of public statements by people who fled the country who are giving us a good overview of some of the problems and issues. And again, uh, the current regime, the current government may not in fact survive for long, but it is capable of surviving because of the special interests within the Russian government, because of the self-preservation of Russian elites who banked on the Russian president for, um, you know, for their survival, of course. Uh, there are studies about this and there are books about this, and we keep kind of talking about it on a very uh, advanced scholastic level, and yet we still don't really have a good idea of what may or may not happen. This war is unprecedented in scale. The effect on the Russian economy and society are unprecedented in scale. They are unexpected. And a lot of the people in Russia who are patriots did not expect this significant impact. Uh, against Russia and on Russia because of this war. So that may be a very significant factor that would ultimately 
serve to undo the current government, but we won't necessarily know 100% and with definitive certainty when that's going to happen. Um, I uh, I should point out that Russian diplomat in Geneva has right. uh, has uh, has quit his job uh, today, uh, saying that he's ashamed uh, to be Russian. Uh, and Newsweek reporting uh, earlier today that, uh, according to Ukrainians, uh, Putin survived an assassination attempt uh, two months ago. So you know, it's uh, it's so interesting about Putin um, and a lot of conversations and talks about his medical treatment, and whether or not he has cancer, whether or not he has double serving for him. I mean, it's almost like. Vladimir Putin is Schrodinger's cat in a Western view. He's both alive and dead at the same time, right? And if he's both alive and dead at the same time, then who's actually at the helm? And, and this has continued for quite a while, right? right. We, we, we can guess with, uh, with, you know, armed with facts and with academic certainty, we can guess based on what we read in the news. We, again, we ultimately may not know when the change happens. Uh, right now, it's very difficult to predict how, he will react, how Vladimir Putin would react, and how some of the elites whose survival depends on him would also react as well as this war grinds on. Let's just hypothetically say, uh, um, I'm interested in your sense, uh, Sam. Um, You know, who, so let's hypothetically say that, you know, Putin, Putin is assassinated. I mean, it's unlikely. I mean, he spends an enormous amount of time, right? It's his security detail that protect all the senior leaders. So it's not like any of the senior leaders are going to be able to do anything where they're under constant medical uh, scrutiny. They're, you know, I mean, they, they, you know, Putin spends an enormous amount of his bandwidth knowing what they're all up to and the security services. And again, the security services are beholden directly to him, right? Shoigu doesn't have his own bodyguards. They're Putin's bodyguards that are protecting Shoigu. That puts Shoigu in a different category. Um, uh, Right. I mean, I don't even think it, it was a little bit freer for the senior most Soviet uh, officials than I think even it is in, in Putin's Russia now. In, in the event something happens to Putin, let's say he has an aneurysm tomorrow and drops dead. Who takes over? You know, that's a trillion dollar question that people have tried to answer probably for the past 20 years. Again, I mentioned that there are very uh, important and very well-informed books written about this topic Um, We know that there are some high-profile civilian military leaders out there. I actually don't have a good answer to that. I don't know who would be able to take over because whoever takes over in a hypothetical scenario would have to keep the peace, would have to appease the Siloviki, would have to appease the military, would have to appease the the business elite and the oligarchs um, and, um, and the Russia's sprawling state industrial sector communities, which depend on the state for contracts depend on the military for contracts as well, would have to appease the nationalists, would have to appease the religious people. I mean, everybody, right? And how that would actually take place is another significant unknown because Putin is a concentration of interests, right? In the Venn diagram of Russian interests, he is the ultimate intersection. And it's not clear if there's somebody like that that would be able to sort of take the reins and uh, be, be able to replace Vladimir Putin in all of those capacities. So again, there's a lot written about this topic. There's a lot of uh, interesting debates that always, have, that always take place um, on whether or not somebody would be able to replace Vladimir Putin if that was to actually take place. But I don't have a good, um, I don't have a good sort of aperture on that. I, I can't really guess who would be able to step in, assuming, assuming that Vladimir Putin is somehow replaced in the next six months. 
Um, I um, and uh, I agree, Brian. I mean, this is a, a topic of perennial uh, conversation uh, and focus, and a long-running discussion because these uh, reports that Putin is very sick have been circulating for at least a decade. Um, that um, and and you know we are surmising uh, what it could be, um, but nobody really knows. And he could outlive us all, for for all we know. Um, you know, hopes, uh, you know, we, we, we're, you know, the key is not letting wishful thinking get in the way of, um, of, of strategy and policy. Um, let me ask you about um, capabilities. So talk to us about the BMPT, the Terminator. Um, I know that we've seen a couple of news stories, you know, that that's being moved into combat, but they don't have a lot of them. And just because, you know, I could call myself, you know, the dominator, uh, but anybody who knows me, you know, would probably not agree that at five foot eight uh, and my build, I'm really a dominator, right? I mean, so just because you call something the Terminator doesn't make it, you know, the Terminator. Talk to us a little bit about the platform and the system, what it means and, you know, why anybody cares about it aside from the fact that it has a cool name. Well, it's a tank support uh, platform. So it features, um, it features a range of systems um, that are basically there to ensure that uh, it is capable of targeting infantry, adversarial infantry, adversarial vehicles, um, and essentially any force that threatens Russian tanks. Uh, It's a relatively recent development. They don't have them in big numbers. There were questions raised earlier when the Russian internal debate on military capabilities was much freer than it is right now. There were questions raised earlier about its utility, whether or not the system was even necessary uh, based on um, the current Russian force structure and other systems and vehicles that could actually be utilized with tanks, right? Because combined arms operations includes not just the T-72s or T-80 or T-90s, it includes BTRs and APCs, armored personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles of different kinds. So this sort of infantry fighting vehicle, this, this heavy uh, vehicle is supposed to be the next generation of uh, vehicles that fights alongside tanks against um, lighter and smaller targets. So if Russia had hundreds of these, they may have had some kind of impact in close quarter combat. Because Russia has very few of them, they're probably not going to make that much of a difference. But again, it is kind of a psychological um, victory of sorts uh, for the Russian military being able to show and showcase its brand new technologies fielded against the Ukrainians. Uh, and uh, I should uh, also ask on, on either side, right? I mean, what sort of crowdsourced technologies are we seeing uh, moving to the front? The Ukrainians have proven extraordinary uh, at their ability to adapt, innovate, and convert. Uh, give us examples on both sides that you've seen, especially in the last two weeks since you were last here. Well, we've seen a lot of uh, commercial UAVs used for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, as well as re- refitted into combat vehicles where... Um, Uh, these small uh, quadrocopters, multi-rotors can actually drop bombs on the adversarial forces. Uh, Certainly Russian allied Donetsk and Lugansk forces are acquiring a lot of these. They post on social media um, collections uh, that were given and and, and delivered by the civilians that feature DJI Mavic drones, that feature radios, night scopes, um, and other necessary sort of uh, technologies. Uh, Some of these are not necessarily heading into the official Russian military forces. Some of these are collected by the Donetsk and Lugansk um, militias. We're also seeing evidence of 
kind of DIY anti-drone guns that have been assembled by these Donetsk and Lugansk militias. Uh, they're not necessarily saying how they work or whether they're successful, but there's video of uh, these type of anti-drone weapons for close quarter counter UAS fighting. And again, Ukrainians have been absolutely incredible in uh, refitting civilian drones into straight up combat vehicles, which present very significant, clear and present danger for the Russian military. The MOD, the Russian Ministry of Defense has expressed concern about some of these civilian technologies heading to the front, but they're not necessarily doing much to actually stop the flow of these systems of these supplies to the Russian and Russian allied forces because they recognize the utility of these systems and probably their own sort of shortcomings in not having enough of certain technologies which are substituted by these civilian um, deliveries. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.